Okay, I think we can begin. Uh, first of all, welcome. I am not Faisal Devji. <laughs> he uh, unfortunately could not be here today, and he asked me to uh, convene this seminar um, in his stead. He passes on his apologies for missing this fascinating talk. Um, uh, so it falls to me to have the honor and privilege to welcome and introduce Dr. Rosinka Chaudhry. Uh, Dr. Chaudhry is the Professor of Cultural Studies and the Dean of Academic Affairs at the Center for the Studies in Social Sciences in Calcutta. Uh, she has published extensively on the cultural history of colonial Bengal, investigating the intersection of the aesthetic, the political, and uh, understandings of the collective in, uh, in modern Bengal. So recent books of hers include Freedom and Beefsteaks, Colonial Calcutta Culture, and The Literary Thing, History, Poetry, and the Making of a Modern Literary Culture. And she has also uh, completed an excellent translation of the complete letters of Rabindranath Tagore, which has received the A.K. Ramunajan Prize for translation. So the title of Dr. Chaudhary's talk today is On the Colonization of India, Public Meetings, Debates, and disputes, Calcutta 1829. So she'll speak for between 45 minutes and an hour, and then we'll discuss, as usual, for around half an hour. Um, Dr. Chaudhry, thank you for speaking today. Thank you, Megan. Mm -hmm. If I could just start by a couple of clarifications. Um, not actually the complete letters, uh, oh, <laughs> Megan, oh, right. that would be sorry. near <laughs> impossible. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, the letters all the, to the Yeah, niece. yeah, all yes, the letters he wrote to his niece, Indira yes. Devi, uh, which, which are um, uh, substantially less than the total volume of letters he wrote in his life. He wrote a lot. Um, and there was one other thing I wanted to know. It's yeah. gone from my mind. Yeah, the Ramanujan. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's actually just an honourable mention. I wish it was the prize okay. <laughs> that went to actually a uh, very distinguished translator who passed away recently, Lakshmi Holmstrom. Uh, yeah, uh, so it was just that. I, they just put everything into that bio note they prepared at the website. Right. <laughs> so, um, j with, with just those two clarifications, I'll start, of course, obviously by thanking. Faisal and this department for setting this up at very short notice uh, because I just uh, wrote to Faisal, you know, uh, a little while before the trip was planned. And um, it's a pity he can't be here, but hopefully uh, I'll sort of send him the paper later. And thank you, Megan. Thank you very much for sort of stepping in and uh, uh, doing the job for him <laughs> and for me. And uh, finally, thank you, Peter, Peter McDonald, for printing, <laughs> printing it out, for just being there. Uh, it would have been impossible uh, rushing around trying to find uh, the sort of paraphernalia you need to get a paper uh, ready. So I'm simply going to read. If I, if I go too fast, stop me, because I have a tendency to do that. I just tend to um, uh, go too fast sometimes. Uh, if there are any clarifications, we can, you can interrupt me if you want, or we can deal with it later, whatever. I don't know what the convention is here. Um, so I'll start with uh, the title. Um, all of you already have. Uh, you know it, but I'll repeat it. Um, it's called On the Colonization of India. Public Meetings, Debates and Disputes, Calcutta, 1829. Now, on the colonization of India is within double inverted quotes. Right at the start, that's that's the first thing I need to say because obviously the phrase um, uh, leads you to think of much wider and vaster things than what what the paper, what the paper is going to be about. Um, this actually came out of some research I did for a book that Oxford University Press published in 2008 on the first Indian poet who wrote in English, Henry Louis Vivian de Rosio. Um, while looking at the papers, he died in 1831, very young. Um, uh, but while looking at the papers between 1825 and 1831, he published a lot of poetry, occasional poetry, in the columns of these papers. Towards 1829, 1830, 31, I kept com coming across an intriguing subject. So they wouldn't have news headlines, but they'd have these sort of subject headings to the columns. And this was simply called On the Colonization of India. Now, this was puzzling to me. I knew the British had colonized India. But what did the papers mean by On the Colonization of India? So I'd actually um, uh, taken a printout of some of this stuff because I just found it interesting at the time and wanted to look it up. And 
so I have looked it up in uh, the last couple of weeks. I've been at the British Library, and this is the result. So let's see whether this makes sense. So the first section is called Disputes. In April 1996, a slim book was published in Bengali from Calcutta titled Rammohan O Bengal Horkora, written by a local, not very well-known historian called Romindru Mitru. It carried a preface entitled Adhunik Uitihashik Gobeshonar Ekti Paddhati Shamporke Koyekti Prushno, or Some Questions on the Research Methods of Modern Historical Investigation. By that, Mitru meant specifically certain famous established researchers and historians. Lobdho Pratishto was one of the words in Bengali that he used. Even more specifically, Borunde, Ashok Shen, and Shumit Sharkar, and their contributions to a very important volume in the revaluation of the category of the Bengal Renaissance, the V.C. Joshi edited 1975 volume, Ram Mohan Roy and the Process of Modernization. Of, and the process of modernization in India. Mitro notes that Borunde was professor of history and director of the Center for Studies in Social Sciences, where I'm also faculty at the moment, and that Ashok Shen was professor of economics at the center at the time these essays were published. Chumit Sharkar, meanwhile, was a close associate, later joining the Subaltern Studies Initiative, as of course all of you know. Twenty years after the excitement and intensity of the mid-70s, when these well-known Marxist historians had demolished the accepted story about both Rammohan and the Renaissance, which from then on has been referred to within quotation marks, and it began to be conceded that it was, after all, a, limpty, an em a limited sorry, an empty Renaissance in its elitism and inability to touch all sectors of the people, Ramindramitra felt it was time to put things straight. His agenda was a simple one. Most of these scholars had depended in their attack on Rammohan on two or three articles in the Bengal Hurkaru, published in 1832, to demolish the myth, the word was Borundes, that Rammohan had been on the side of the peasants despite being a landlord himself. He had, it had so far been believed, during the last one and a half centuries, as Borunde put it, spoken on their behalf in his responses to the Parliamentary Select Committee and in other proposals he had made. This belief was, they said, quote, the result of a mythology which has been created by accretions of liberalism. But Rammohan had, in fact, betrayed the peasants and proved himself thus to be true to his class of comprador landholding elites in Bengal. Shumit Sharkar, in his article in the V.C. Joshi volume, refers to the fact that by 1832, I'm quoting, Ram Mohan was paying the price for this centrism in the shape of an attack on two fronts. Meaning by this centrism that Ram Mohan was a follower of the middle path, neither of the radicals nor of the conservatives. Sharkar focuses on the fact that the conservative Dharmoshabha paper, the Shamachat Chundrika, found Ramohan's evidence to be unduly harsh on the zamindars on the one hand, and that on the other were, quote, a whole series of articles in the Bengal Hurkaru violently attacking the reformer for being too soft in his critique of company maladministration and far too tactful on the question of zamindari oppression of the peasants. Unquote. But Mitro points out that Sharkar is making the mistake of assigning the position of the Bengal Hurkaru as being on the left because of its opposition to the Dharmashabha on the right. The reason for Sharkar reducing this position on the left wing to the Bengal Hurkaru, Mitro thinks, happens because of Sharkar's assumption that because the newspaper was edited by James Sutherland, who was an ex-associate of James Silk Buckingham of Calcutta Journal fame, it and Sutherland were of the same camp. Buckingham, well known as a radical in India, had been deported from Calcutta for his fearless reporting in his paper, The Calcutta Journal, in 1823. So, of course, you know, um, on the side of the radical party, uh, as it was known uh, at the time. So, Mitro bases his defense of Ram Mohan on an investigation into whether the Bengal Hurkaru could really be understood to have been a radical or left-wing publication. He uses the word Bampunti, which is why I'm using the word left-wing. But before that, he has one more historian to discuss, Ashok Shen, who deals with Ram Mohan's economic thought as well as the permanent settlement and the landlord-peasant equation related to it. 
Regarding the Hurkaru controversy, Sen wrote, and I'm quoting, There were forces in Bengal expecting him to recommend more radical changes. And Ramohan's way of expressing his opinions in favour of the riots sorely disappointed the Hurkaru, which expected that the denunciation of the system which was responsible for the miserable lot of the riot should be something very strong and pungent. It had high expectations of Ramohan in the matter. Remarking on the point, the paper held that Ramohan belonged to the hammers, but his evidence would be taken for that of the anvils at home. Mitru focuses on the phrase, there were forces in Bengal, and proceeds to show that these so-called forces were, in fact, the British and Indian merchants and indigo men who expected more radicalism from Ramohan than he had shown. All these scholars had, uh, who had used the Bengal Hurkaru material, Mitru said, had not, in fact, bothered to investigate the historical context within which the editorials of the Bengal Hurkaru had appeared. Whose interests did the Bengal Hurkaru represent? What was the significance of the anger and disappointment expressed at Rammohun? Which class or faction did the very human editor of the Bengal Hurkaru belong to? In point of fact, Buckingham had campaigned tirelessly through the length and breadth of England between 1829 and 1833 in support of colonization and was certainly of the same camp as Sutherland of the Bengal Hurkaru. But in the absence of any other archival material in India, Mitru chose to defend Rammohan by focusing on the Bengal Hurkaru's alliance with the indigo men in India to exonerate Rammohan from his supposed non-advocacy of the rights of the peasants of India. What had the Hurkaru said? On June 20th, 1832, an angry editorial in the Hurkaru had published an hitherto unprecedented attack on Ramon Roy's evidence before the Select Committee, ending with the comment, One must be a hammer or anvil in this world, says an old Spanish proverb. Ramon Roy, it is clear, belongs to the hammers, and his evidence is taken at home for that of the anvils. Two days later, on June 22nd, the editor reiterated, Ramohan left this country as an apostle of his suffering brethren, and grieved as we are to say it, his evidence and his suggestions are alike unworthy of him and of his mission. They are both an utter betrayal of the cause he was expected to advocate. He went to England as a voice from India to tell the wrongs and the sufferings and to assert the rights of her children. We find him in these papers a mere Jemindar. Apart from the fact that the newspapers of late 18th century and early 19th century Calcutta had been established by traders, merchants and capitalists, as they were called at the time, the fight as it unfolded in civil society was against the East India Company's monopoly. Already when the Charter Act had come up for renewal in 1813, some concessions had been granted freeing up the trade to India and the English traders who took advantage of them arranged for capital and came out to Calcutta to establish agency houses, sometimes joining the large agency houses already established there. In keeping with their own perception of themselves, Mitra describes these merchants as members of the middle classes engendered by the Industrial Revolution as it unfolded in Britain. The philosophical underpinnings of these men came from Adam Smith and Jeremy Bentham, and they were commonly labelled utilitarians, while the economic views of Adam Smith and Ricardo provided them with notions of enlightened self-interest. So much, of course, was well known in 1996 when Mitro wrote his book. Recent works by Jennifer Pitts, 2005, Shankar Muthu, 2003, and Siraj Ahmed, 2012, have questioned the easy ascription of the Enlightenment legacy to colonial exploitation now, showing how readings of Adam Smith, for instance, in support of the economic policies of colonization, were based on particular sections of his work when he had, in fact, spoken unequivocally against the economic policies underpinning empire in other parts. Mitro concludes in 96 by pointing out that the agency houses, traders and merchants in Calcutta had, over the course of the first three decades of the 19th century, specifically, he says, 1818 to 1833, made it their business to conduct a vigorous campaign against the remaining monopolies the company held, and that of the newspapers that represented their interests, the Bengal Hurkaru was the main organ. The paper was owned by a big publishing house and bookseller, Samuel Smith & Company. And in fact, Samuel Smith & Company were part of a very large agency house called Alexander & Company. 
The crucial question that Mitra should have asked was, while every student of English history knew that these merchant men were part of the English middle classes and belonged to the left-wing or radical party in England, where did they stand when displaced to India? What was their position within the society and politics of India looked at from the Indian point of view? Mitro's defense turns back to the three editorials in the Bengal Hurkaru in 1832 and reiterates that the dissatisfaction expressed therein was actually the dissatisfaction of the indigo merchants, capitalists and traders of English society in India. He ends on an ironical note. I quote, Therefore, it is with a shudder of feeling that we realize, sitting here in the country of Nildarpun, that in 1832, those English merchants, traders, indigo men had been so dissatisfied with Ramon Roy because he had apparently spoken on behalf of the Bengals, Zamindars, in his evidence and betrayed peasant society in the process. If Ramon Roy had spoken against the interests of the indigo men, those oppressors of the peasants frozen in time in Dinobundhu Mitro's powerful 1861 protest play Nildarpun, then Ramohan was obviously still somehow in the right morally, was Mitro's implicit assumption. The next section is called Meetings. The East India Company's charter was renewed, was renewed twice in the first half of the 19th century, once in 1813 and again in 1833. Both times, sweeping changes were made affecting the monopoly held by the company, fundamentally transforming the nature of Britain's trade with India. These were agitated times, but nothing in comparison to the tumult that followed, as between 1830 and 1834, all of the leading Calcutta agency houses crashed swept away, as Anthony Webster points out, in the worst financial crisis in living memory, bringing bankruptcy and destitution for many Europeans and Indians who had deposited their life savings in the houses. British India, he says, was plunged into deep economic depression. Now, the firm whose failure in 1830 precipitated the wholesale collapse of the system was John Palmer and Company, and revelations of that firm's mismanagement contributed greatly to the subsequent collapse of the other Calcutta firms, which all went under by the end of 1834, falling like a proverbial deck of cards. There was alarm and consternation in the pages of the principal English-language newspapers of the day, the India Gazette, the Bengal Hurkaru, and the John Bull, as every few months saw new columns, there were no news headlines then, as I uh, just said, uh, new columns devoted to the failures of Alexander and Company that owned the Hurkaru and Macintosh and Company in December 1832 and January 1833, respectively, with Colvin and Company following in April 1833. And there were others, smaller firms as well. The problems of partner disloyalty and bad debt that brought down Palmer and Company were probably endemic, and historians have pointed not just to the investment decisions taken by these agency houses, but also to the appetite of leading agency house partners for high living, with historians D.M. Pierce and Omiyo Kumar Bakchi, uh, Omiyo Kumar Bakchi, by the way, also former director at the, at, at the center, uh, blaming the failures on the sheer greed of individual agency house partners. Ironically, it was the very same John Palmer of Palmer and Company, the first large agency house to come crashing down in 1830, who chaired the huge Calcutta meeting of December 15, 1829, on behalf of the colonization of India. A meeting had been held before in 1827, but that was on the sugar question only, as G.A. Princip pointed out during the course of the meeting itself. The Bengal Hurkaru had been excited about this meeting for some time preceding it, as they repeatedly announced the event in their editorial columns. Quote, the approach of one of the most remarkable and important public meetings which will have ever taken place in Calcutta is how they described it in the week before, publishing speeches such as that of Lord Grenville's on the last renewal of the company's charter and following the course of the meeting right from its initial submission of the requisition. Quote, the effect of a petition in favour of colonisation from the inhabitants of Calcutta would be greater than the effect of all the petitions with which the table of the House of Commons will be loaded from all parts of England, Scotland, Ireland and Berwick-upon-Tweed, said the Bengal Hurkaru. The parliamentarian who would pre present such a petition from Calcutta to the House of Commons would be listened to as the representative of India, concerned with declaring the evils from which its inhabitants have suffered and bearer of the testimony of the inhabitants of Calcutta who have, unlike the Irish, 
not followed up their demands with perseverance and importunity. On December 3, 1829, the editorial announced, We have great pleasure in publishing today a requisition from the British merchants and other and others, inhabitants of Calcutta, to the High Sheriff, requesting him to convene a meeting, and this is within quotes because it must have been in the requisition itself, for the purpose of petitioning Parliament to throw open the China and India trade and to provide on the expiration of the existing charter of the East India Company for the unfettered application of British skill, capital and industry to the commercial and agricultural resources of India. This phrase, the unfettered application of British skill, capital and industry, uh, would recur as the discussion progressed. Further, the Bengal Hurkaru felt that, to quote it, Trade here should be free to all subjects of the crown under a good and equal system of the laws and of judicial process. The person and property of every man being respected, whether he be of this or that color or country. All progress must remain stationary, felt the Bengal Hurkaru, until the colonization of India had been achieved. And in resuming their abstract of Lord Grenville's speech on India affairs, they venture to tell us now, finally, what they mean by colonization. I can tell you I was very relieved to finally come across this uh, uh, definition of what exactly they were talking about when they were talking about colonization. The colonization of India, felt the Bengal Hurkaru, meant, quote, permitting to this country, meaning India, the free resort of as they put it, intelligent Englishmen. Interesting phrase uh, to use because uh, there's, there's going to be a huge discussion on the class component of the Englishmen who would uh, be allowed to come. And they sort of avoid that by just saying intelligent Englishmen. With the right of exerting their abilities and, in, and investing their capital, how and in whatsoever manner they, choo they choose, subject only to wholesome laws. The description of colonization which alone is applicable to India, it further explained, involved men who are above the laboring classes, but who are capable of directing the labor of others. It is by this graft that effectual improvement can alone be made in this country. And it was absurd to think, it went on, that the disinheritance of natives would ensue if Englishmen were permitted to hold land. It then follows, and while reading it, I thought they could well be talking of Britain today, because the next sentence says, As well might it be asserted that the immense concourse of moneyed within italics, strangers into London, has the effect of driving citizens from their houses. Besides, it is notorious that the native landholders themselves prefer a British tenant for obvious reasons to a native one. Some of these obvious reasons are obviously, that the natives are ignorant of the principles of agricultural improvement, etc. But it is also because all that native zamindars know is, quote, how to filch by the most summary methods the greater part of the produce so as to leave the cultivator the barest means of existence. The education and feelings of the British landholder would lead him to pursue totally different methods, employ well-directed and profitable principles of agriculture, to construct public and private roads to facilitate traffic to villages, control the water not to flood but to flow over the land in can canals and fertilize the fields. So the British, we're still waiting for all this to happen <laughs> in India. So the British zamindar, the Bengal Hurkaru is confident to assert, would give the native his full percentage due to him and, quote, still secure to himself an ample and honorable recompense. This win-win situation would not only increase the resources and happiness of the millions of our fellow subjects, it would also augment to an astonishing degree the commerce of the British nation in general. This, in essence, is the proposal that Ram Mohan Roy followed Darukanath Tagore in standing up to support on the day of the meeting itself. The meeting took place on 15th December 1829 at 11 o'clock at the town hall, and the British Horkaru hoped the previous day that it would be numerously and respectably attended by all, the by all intelligent persons of our mixed population, whether usually resident in the city or in the Mufasal, for the objects in view are general and common to all classes. The East India Company, of course, 
would be opposed to such a meeting, the Bengal Hurkaru conceded, as it attacked the company in the language of the impeachment of Warren Hastings, alluding to, quote, the obstinate and guilty committers of daily crime and misdemeanor. Unquote. That the company, again, this is the Bengal Hukaru again, that the company have an instinctive dread and aboriginal horror of colonization is well known and avowed by all their advocates, the Hurkaru says. For they have always said, quote, let us govern India for we hate colonization and will prevent it by all means, direct and indirect. The situation the East India Company is in is illustrated with a quote from George Canning, Anglo-Irish poet of the time. To drink or die, O fraud, O specious lie, delusive choice, for if we drink, we die. A predicament best described in the Hindi phrase about the Dilli Kaladdu, <laughs> it seems to me, as the hard choices faced by it do not seem desirable in either instance. The meeting at 11 o'clock was announced both in the edit pages as well as by printing the notice issued by the sheriff in the first page alongside the advertisements and other notices that daily appeared there. The following day, 16 December, the lead editorial announced its satisfaction at the full meeting at the town hall yesterday where the numbers present far exceeded our most sanguine hopes. Independent too of the numbers, it went on, we do not recollect ever to have witnessed a more unanimous or spirited expression of satisfaction than was displayed as the objects of the meeting were unfolded and seldom have louder cheers echoed through the hall than followed the reading of the resolutions and the observations made relative to them by the several movers and seconders. The meeting began with the first resolution being moved by Mr. John Smith and Dwarkanath Tagore, the Bengal Hurkaru reported, in moving the fifth resolution, pointed out how the wealth of the zamindars had increased from the establishment of the indigo factories, enabling the proprietors not only to pay the government revenue but to secure a considerable surplus to themselves. Interestingly, we then have an account of Ram Mohan Roy's limited participation in this event. As it is reported that, and I'm quoting, in this statement, he was confirmed by Ramun Roy, who was unfortunately laboring under indisposition and therefore incapable of delivering his sentiments so fully as he, or we are sure, the meeting could have wished. The full report was published on December 17th, and this is really sort of pages of the paper, sort of two or three pages of it with every single resolution sort of, so it's really column and co column after column of what each and every uh, person at the meeting said the resolutions passed and, uh, and, and, and seconded. So this full report appears on December 17th and it begins by mentioning that the High Sheriff having read the requisition, Mr. John Palmer was called to the chair. Mr. E. Trotter, Mr. Bracken, Mr. Limond, and Mr. G. A. Princip preceded Dwarkanath, who began his speech, and now we have the actual words of the speech itself as, as it's reported in the paper, who began his speech, uh, it was now reported by saying, Although unaccustomed to speaking in public and having never addressed an assembly so numerous as that before which I have now the honour to present myself, yet I feel it incumbent on me in submitting this resolution to your attention to offer a few remarks corroborative of the opinions therein maintained. He then continues that he found that Quote, the cultivation of indigo and residents of Europeans have considerably benefited the country and the community at large. The zemindars becoming wealthy and prosperous, the riots materially improved in their condition and possessing many more comforts than the generality of my countrymen where indigo cultivation and manufacture is not carried on. The value of land in the vicinity to be considerably enhanced and cultivation rapidly progressing. He insists that these observations are made from personal observation and experience, both with the places as well as with the character and manner of the indigo planters. We note that he takes care to add here that, quote, there may be a few exceptions as regards the general conduct of indigo planters, but they are extremely limited and comparatively speaking of the most trifling importance. He then goes on to cite an instance in support of his statement, mentioning a particular estate that was unprofitable before, but which within a few years of the introduction of indigo gives me a handsome profit. Several of my relations and friends too, he asserts, um, have in like manner improved their property and are receiving a large income from their estates. 
If so much benefit may be derived in this one instance alone, he wonders, sounding more and more like the Tatas and Ambani's pressing for fuller liberalization of the Indian economy, what further advantages may not be anticipated from the unrestricted application of British skill and capital and industry to the very many articles which this country is capable of producing to as great an extent and of as excellent a quality as any other in the world, and which, of course, cannot be expected to be produced without the free recourse of Europeans. On these grounds, then, the fifth resolution of the petition was moved by Darukanath Tagore and seconded by somebody the English papers called Prasannate Tagore, which, which is actually later runs up, Prashannakumar Tagore, cousin of Darukanath from the Pathriya Ghata branch. Of Ramon Roy, curiously, no more than a couple of sentences may be found. No doubt because, as the Bengal Hurkaru had already reported, he had apparently been indisposed that day. This was the sum total of his involvement in the meeting in the long report of the Bengal Hurkaru. So finally now we get a few lines that are ascribed to have come out, come out of the mouth of Ramon himself. Ramon Roy supported the resolution and said, From personal experience, I am impressed with the conviction that the greater our intercourse with European gentlemen, the greater will be our improvement in literary, social and political affairs, a fact which can be easily proved by comparing the condition of those of my countrymen who have enjoyed this advantage with that of those who have, who unfortunately have not had that opportunity, and a fact which I could, to the best of my belief, declare on solemn oath before any assembly. I fully agree with Darukanath Tagore in the purport of the resolution just read. The generality of his response here could, cannot be plainer. He's impressed, he says, with the conviction that the more we mix with the Europeans, the more we may improve in the arts and sciences, in society and in politics. This much he has already said before and in writing, for instance, in his famous letter on education to Lord Amherst in 1823. The only fact he swears on to this assembly is one he would be prepared to stand by before any group of people, that those Indians who have mingled with Europeans were better off than those who had not. Finally, a nod in the direction of friend Darukanath, asserting that he is in full agreement. Debates The debates surrounding what was called the colonization of India, by which is meant we now understand the right of Europeans to settle in India, were of course fiercely fought at the time. So, just to clarify the sort of various sides in the debate once more, on the one side were the authorities, representatives of the East India Company, and of course the extremely Tory John Bull in Calcutta, with whom the Bengal Hurkaru and the India Gazette are constantly skirmishing in their editorial pages, calling it, in one instance, uh, I quote, co this is, they're calling the John Bull, the solitary and shameless advocate of monopoly in trade and despotism in government. On the other side, so this is the one, this is the, on the one hand, and on the other side were the supporters of free trade and campaigners against monopolies of all nature, the India Gazette, owned subsequently by Darukanath Tagore, and the Hurkaru, its brother radical, which slowly gained in strength over the 1840s, eventually acquiring and incorporating the India Gazette into its fold. By 1843, it's already, so the headline sort of says, Bengal Hurkaru, in which is incorporated the India Gazette. So, strongly Whiggish in its politics, the proprietor from 1821 onward was Samuel Smith. And in 1833, in an article on the Calcutta Press in the Bengal Hurkaru, J. H. Stockiller described the handsome building on Hare Street in Tank Square. Tank Square, you know, is the little tank in front of the writer's building in, in Calcutta. Um, the handsome building on Hare Street in Tank Square that housed the Hurkaru with its large private library in a handsome pillared building lit by gas at night. Although described as being almost of the radical party, we must remember that this, this ascription applied to English politics, which when it operated in India could have said to have occupied a different position politically, as Ramindra Mitru had so astutely pointed out in his defense of Ram Mohan Roy. Now, what of the Bengali newspapers? This is the English language press that I'm mostly focusing on. But of the Bengali newspapers, the Shamacha Chandrika was conservative. It was an organ of the Dharma Shabha. Um, and opposed to Ram Mohan's progressive Shangbat Komudi, Ram Mohan Roy had established his newspaper in 1821. While, of course, a third sort of angle is provided by the Serampur missionaries, Shamachar Dorpun, which was also a Bengali newspaper uh, that had been published from early in the 19th century. 
Now, what happens is that every English newspaper at the time publishes extracts from rival publications of different <coughs> denominations, so that in each newspaper, several responses from other newspapers to the colonization debate may be found. So on August 22nd, 1831, in the India Gazette, we find a couple of paragraphs from the Chundrika that put its bewilderment on the issue of colonization most pithily. So I'll quote from the India Gazette's extract of the Chandrika. On Tuesday, the 15th of December last, so this is a translation from the Bengali done by uh, uh, the uh, Bengal Hulkaru people. So on Tuesday, 15th of December last, some Calcutta English merchants and babus assembled at the town hall to determine upon a petition to parliament to throw open the China trade and to permit Europeans to become talukdars and to engage in the cultivation of lands when the Honorable Company's charter should expire. We fancy that of the natives of India, only Babu Darukanath Thakur and Babu Prashunna Kumar Thakur, called in the English papers Prasannate Thakur, were present. But none of the Honorable Company's civil or military servants attended the meeting and we cannot learn from any paper what is their opinion on the subject, which is interesting because I was searching for their <laughs> side of the story as well, but it's very difficult to find. We have a few words to say on this subject, it goes on. The English desire to become talukdars and cultivators. This will be advantageous to them. More particularly, will the plan be profitable to the indigo men? They are now obliged to carry on their operations by taking izaras from natives. In time to come, they will become talukdars and acquire sovereignty over the poor, wretched inhabitants of the country. Be that as it may, I want to know what advantage this will bring to the natives who have signed or may sign the petition. If any of our readers will send this information to the native papers, many may be induced to second it. So the Chandrika is not opposed to colonization wholesale. It concedes it may be persuaded, though its tone is certainly sceptical, the English desire to become talukdars, etc. An organ of the Dharma Shabha, comprised as it was of the wealthiest men in Bengal, some of whom were certainly landowners, the question asked here is on behalf of those who may sign. The riots were poor and wretched, but this is followed with, be that as it may. It asked then who may sign or already have signed. Certainly, all who could sign were from the elite classes, confident of putting their signatures on a petition to the English parliament. As far as the Indians were concerned, the division seems to have been not between the left wing and the right wing, as Shumit Charka has implicitly assumed, but between the landholders and the others. A letter writer calling himself one desiring the good of his country wrote to the editor of the Komudi, so uh, basically to Bhavani Charan Bandupadhyay, who was the front uh, 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 sort of the editor of the of the Komudi, giving a graphic description of the debates on colonization among the landholding classes that I shall quote in full. So this is a uh, sort of long uh, letter that appears, but because it sums it up so well, I sort of want to read the whole of it to you. At the time when the petition against colonization was signed, to whatever Zamindar's house we could go, the chief topic of conversation was the good or evil to be expected from the English settling in the country and engaging in agriculture. Some said that evil was certainly to be anticipated from it. Sir, said they, what injustice the indigo planters are doing. But the Zamindars replied to this with a laugh. You think only of the injustice of the indigo planters, but cannot regard the injustice which they experience from our countrymen. How shall we describe that which happens at a distance? At the end of 1824, there was a trial for the murder of an indigo planter, first before the magistrate of Nadia and then before the circuit judge. And whose was the wrong in that business? And in a late trial of the same sort at Hooghly, what sort of injustice on the part of the natives was not discovered? The opponents on hearing such things observed, we suppose then you will not sign the petition. Are you not aware of the evils that will arise from their coming? I think there's a, a sort of um, um, typo here because it should actually be, we suppose then you will sign the petition. Are you not aware of the evils that will arise from their com coming? The Zamindars replied, we do not anticipate any evil whatsoever from their coming. On the contrary, the landlords will receive more rent, more laborers will be required and they will receive higher wages, the land will be improved and we shall see many other improvements. When there's a deficiency of rain, 
The cultivation will be carried on by raising water by machinery. Knowledge will be promoted in the country villages. Now the people are afraid whenever they see the sahibs, but then they will be familiar with them. The poor receiving higher wages, there will be a great diminution of robbery in the country. If all this good is to be expected, why should we pray for its prevention? The opponents replied, such and such babus will entreat you on this business. The landholders said again, those who make such entreaties, entreaties cannot surely be proprietors of land. They must be some Calcutta traders or public officers. What do they know of what is good or bad in the Mufasil, that we should be diverted by their opposition from supporting what will be productive of so much advantage? Thinking the publication of this conversation expedient, I have sent it to you. So this is the entire text of the letter. The landholders seem to echo the editor of the Bengal Hurkaru verbatim on the utopian future of the countryside under indigo, planted, uh, under, under indigo planters brought directly from England. The one desiring the good of his country is certainly on the side of the landholders and pushes the case for the settling of Europeans in agriculture in the Bengal countryside. When indigo planters are murdered, we are shown how that was demonstrably the fault of the natives who are in the wrong. There is a slight semantic confusion in the letter, as I pointed out, as it is assumed that not signing the petition will allow English agriculturalists in India, but the overall sentiment, we can see, remains clear. Those who oppose colonization, the letter writer rightly surmises, are those who were surely not proprietors of land. Calcutta traders or pub public officers is the guess. And what do they know of the rural hinterland? This is a continuing debate. And the Samachar Darpan, the Bengali paper published by Marshman and Company from Sirampur, was of the opinion, I quote, if colonization be permitted, the English will come in excessive numbers. So they, the Samachar Darpan, the missionaries are actually against it. The English will then come in excessive numbers and settling themselves on the land, engage in the cultivation of the soil and establish many manufactories. Some have imagined that this will increase general wealth and happiness, but this is a fallacious hope, for there are many proofs which plainly show that through their engaging in manufactures, the natives of this country are reduced to the greatest distress. The state of Ireland will show the happiness which would flow from their becoming Jomidars and Talukdars. This is not the only time Ireland, Ireland, will be, uh, Ireland will be mentioned in this context. I've mentioned it before and I'll come to it again in another important instance. The Shomachar Torpun piece then goes on to supply a most interesting comparison between rates charged by builders, carpenters, goldsmiths, tailors and even boatmen, showing how trade in all these occupations suffer already from the influx of the English into India. 20 years ago, when there were no English builders in this metropolis, he says, referring to circa 1810, therefore, Sultan Ajuddin Chand and many other native builders acquired fortunes by following that trade. But then some English mysteries came here and monopolized that trade. Among these, Bruce and Smiley, Byrne and Curry, and others having acquired many lakhs of rupees, abandoned the travel, some returned to their own country, some began to wield the pen. On the other side, the unfortunate native mysteries left their trowels and put on a turban. When that was gone, they took to the spade. Now they are in a state of starvation. I therefore judge that through the English mysteries having taken up the trade, the native mysteries have been completely ruined. A similar story unfolds with regard to carpenters, who have been ruined by Rolton Company and other English carpenters taking possession of that trade, and the deceased Ram Ghosh and other natives relinquished the rule and took to the chisel. So with the goldsmiths, whose business was destroyed by Hamilton and Company, and as for tailors, why, natives such as Rumjon, Ustagar and others acquired property in this occupation. But now, with Gibson and Company and Simpson and Company, those who lived by the needle, it says, have, through want of food, become as thin as needles. Even both cement business, as the Dattas acquired large fortunes by letting out sloops and bajaros, but now the English have established boat offices. Judge then, it finishes, to what distress four or five manufacturers who have taken the trade of the city have reduced the native. The extract concludes. Can you not then determine what fatal consequences will ensue from their coming in greater numbers? So finally then, to a section I call written by a native youth. This uh, is a, an important inter intervention made by a young student 
um, and and um, I, I just want to give you uh, the fascinating argument that he makes, actually, uh, which is reported in full. So we actually have the full text of the speech. Letters, editorials, reprinted articles and speeches, extracts from other newspapers, all of these were used for a constant flow of argument on the subject of colonization, backwards and forwards, from the grand general meeting of the inhabitants of Calcutta in 1829 onward. Something like the Brexit <laughs> right now. Different groups, vested interests, political ideologies, all clashed in an attempt to shape the outcome. To be decided far away on English soil, but connected nevertheless through a cross-communication taking place among the various publications, newspapers, journals, periodicals, all linked to each other laboriously but robustly through networks of reading publics. While the British Hurkaru and the India Gazette put forth a steady stream in favour of colonisation and the lifting of the monopoly, the only publication of note, not counting the John Bull, that was on the side of the East India Company was the Asiatic Journal published from Leadenhall Street in London, but picking up and highlighting the opposition to colonization whenever possible. On Tuesday, February 8, 1831, an editorial in the India Gazette expressed outrage at what it called the ridiculous importance attached by the Asiatic Journal to a paper which appeared in it the previous year on the 12th of February, 1830. Note the time lag between the original publication and its reappearance in the London Journal. It's being picked up in, uh, uh, in the Asiatic Journal. And then again, the reaction to it here in Calcutta. It takes almost a whole year for uh, the reaction to get going. In publishing this paper, the editor of the India Gazette said, we expressly stated that we presented it to our readers rather as a specimen of native literary talent and research than of correct reasoning. It had never occurred to the editor, he said, never entered our conceptions that any Englishman could be missiled by the assumptions of the ingenious writer. The writer and his connections are known to the editor, who is inclined to believe that the, 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 the writer of the paper is not convinced by his own arguments, but was merely conducting an intellectual exercise. Such is the lack of sound argument on that side of the question, however, meaning the opposition to colonization, that the Asiatic journal swallows it all in the mass, flesh, skin and bones, and smacks his lips after it as a rare morsel against colonization. There is no certainty about who wrote the article that lay at the heart of all that sound and fury, but in all probability it was a young student of de Rosio's at the Hindu College, part of the loose formation later labelled Young Bengal. Young Bengal has been mocked for its pretensions, derided for its ambitions, and sneered at for its lack of convictions, almost consistently from the very moment it came into existence, and the editor of the India Gazette is no exception. The article seems to have been read out on February 4th, 1830, at the Society for the Acquisition of General Knowledge, as the speech starts with a reference to a society, and that really is the best-known society in Calcutta at the time. The speech starts, the subject which I am desirous of introducing to the society is of very great importance to the natives of this country, particularly as it may involve them in a change not easily or perhaps never after to be repealed. The main body of the argument involves a recital of precedence. So the speaker starts with ancient Greece, proceeds to the Roman colonies, and then enumerates a third sort of colony, namely colonies of trade. Of these, he starts with the ancient Phoenicians, but comes soon enough to the modern colonies, among which may be mentioned, and this is, quote, the settlement of the British in Ireland in the year 1612, and in North America in the reigns of Elizabeth and James, and that in New South Wales in the year 1786, as also the settlement of the Spanish in Mexico and Peru, etc., etc. So here now, the example of Ireland is the first to be cited. The British the speaker says, settled Ulster without paying the Irish for their lands, as they were considered rebels. And all the conspiracies the Irish formed and barbarously executed served only to dispossess them further. British historians, the speaker points out, treat at great length the inhumanity of the Irish against the settlers, which, he says, at once points out how they hated and detested them. And is it possible that they so much disliked those that acted as friends towards them? He asks. The argument then goes to America and the arrival of the British in the reign of Elizabeth, upon whose settling there, quote, mighty disputes ensued between the red and white men. And the white men, in their desire to improve the red men, then, quote, introduced among them rum, gin, brandy, and 
the other comforts of life, such as, quote, the benefit of medicines, after, of course, first introducing the disease they were calculated to cure. With time, several colonies were established on the principle that the best way of taking possessions of the land was by force. And at present, so this is 1830 we're talking about, the settlers have formed a republican government of their own and the aborigines are driven into the interior parts of the country where they adhere to their ancient rights and manners as they are by no means desirous of being slaves to the white men. New Holland's discovery by the Dutch and the English in 1618 and the colonies of the Spaniards, which afford far greater examples of oppression and cruelty, are next discussed, including the case of the Peruvians and their massacre and betrayal. The speaker finally comes from these instances to the crux of the matter, the colonization of India. And on this he says, in not even one of the historical facts above quoted can be found an example in which the conditions of the aboriginal inhabitants of a country has been ever bettered by colonization. Nay, so far from it that it can safely be asserted that in every part of the world, since colonies were first established to the present day, the original inhabitants of a country have always suffered from the experiment. Simple enough argument. What would happen in India? He goes on to ask, if good and honest English farmers were induced to leave their delightful homes, is it certain that they would cultivate such things as would be beneficial to the natives of this country? Large cabbages and fine blue indigo would be produced, no doubt. But who would care if the produce of rice was bettered or not, provided there could be found meat sufficient to afford them ample food? Another assumption is scoffed at in no uncertain terms. It has been asserted by some Europeans that English labourers could do work a great deal more than the natives of this country. But it is prejudice alone that makes them say so. The European also is a human being as well as the native, and I for my own part sincerely believe that the native can work as much as any European workman could do. Nay, I may even add that in a climate like this, the native could work more than the European. Everyone then would suffer. Zemindars, riots, craftsmen, agriculturalists. And India requires no importation of articles from other countries to promote the welfare and happiness of its inhabitants. In short, the article concludes quite seriously. We need not wish for colonization any more than, as Mr. Irving observes in one of his works, the inhabitants of Europe would desire their country to be colonized by men in the moon. And we come now to this extract from what seems to have been Washington Irving's 1809 book, a uh, sketch of uh, um, uh, the history of New York. Uh, a hilarious extract is then provided from Mr. Irving, described as a citizen of the USA. Mr. Irving's imagined scenario, are taken certainly, as I mentioned, from Washington Irving's 1809 satire, A Knickerbocker's History of New York. The speaker, though, and this is what I find interesting, provides his own spin. Uh, on the story, because he sort of reinterprets and retells uh, the story, making you always think of the British colonizer in India while he tells it. So this, he provides his own spin on this story of aerial visitants whose sailing in the air and cruising among the stars is no more astonishing to Europeans than their own technology is to simple savages faced with gunpowder and glittering steel. The aerial voyagers, however, finding this planet a howling wilderness, take the president of this society, so the society at which he's speaking, the King of England and the Emperor of Haiti, to their own lunar native lands. Just as he says in brackets, the Indian chiefs are led about as spectacles throughout the courts of Europe and presented to the, that lunar potentate as uncouth monsters who carry their heads on their shoulders instead of under their arms, have two eyes instead of one, are destitute of tails and are of... Finally, a horrible whiteness instead of being pea green. These ignorant denizens have, quote, not a gleam of true philosophy among them, which necessitates the introduction of the lights of reason and the comforts of the moon among them, as well as their conversion, of course, from the darkness of Christianity. And when the natives of this earth do not respond, ungrateful wretches that they are, to the fact that these men from the moon have come thousands of miles to improve your worthless planet, the speaker continues, they shall give up argument and demolish your cities with moonstones, banishing you to the deserts of Arabia or the frozen regions of Lapland. 
Even such would be the fruits of colonization here, says the penultimate line of the essay, ending a greater evil than colonization can in fact never happen. So very much is it to the disadvantage of the natives, and I therefore most sincerely hope that it will please our gracious sovereign to renew the charter of the East India Company on its expiration and thereby obtain the blessings of his loyal and loving subjects in the East. That's the end of his speech. So after all of that, the meeting, the debates, the disputes, let's just quickly finish, sort of, uh, I know I'm running out of time completely, but, but the outcome. So, you know, after I sort of, I really had to sort of search to find what happened then, Did what happened, because I'm not a student of history myself, so what happened to the charter in 1833? Were they allowed in? Were they not allowed in? Because it's difficult, uh, you know, for a non, not a student of history to know. But... Three years after this speech was read out, 1830, this um, young student is reading out this speech. Three years after it, the Charter Act of 1833 was successfully steered through the House of Commons by Macaulay in London. The bill effectively ended the East India Company's commercial life while retaining its governmental function. Residents and property rights in British India were allowed by the Act, which also allowed British subjects to move within the company's territories much more freely. All that the young student had argued against had come to pass. Historians such as Anthony Webster have shown how political events leading to the introduction of the Great Reform Act in 1832 here in England produced delays in the execution of the new charter. But on the substantive question, apparently its outcomes were never in doubt. These questions included the company's monopoly on trade with China and also the vexed subject of our debate on whether or not to allow Europeans to reside in and acquire property on Indian soil. Our student certainly seems unaware that its outcome was never in doubt, but plain economic considerations settled the outcome once and for all. In hindsight, we can see that the position of the company in 1829 was even weaker than during the first renewal in 1812-13 in respect of the China monopoly. Its finances had deteriorated and trade rapidly declined with private merchant houses such as Bearings, interestingly, dominating British exports, and the company suffered severe losses. The campaign against the monopoly of the company company was fought not just in Calcutta, but crucially in the north of England, with the provincial merchants and manufacturers of Glasgow, Liverpool and Manchester forming East India associations and fighting a concerted battle against the renewal of the company's charter. Defenders of the company's privileges did surprisingly little to lobby in their own defence and seemed filled with resignation and fatalism. While these outcomes, while these were outcomes enacted through Parliament, what outcome may be envisaged for the debate on Ramun Roy, first in 1832 in the Calcutta newspapers and then again a century and a half later in 1970s Calcutta? Robindra Mitra, in defending Ramun 20 years after the attack on him by the Marxist historians of the CSSC, had relied on the limited archive available to him in Calcutta of the fading and blackened sheets of the Bengal Hurkaru in the National Library there. But Jacques Derrida has famously said in Archive Fever that, quote, there is no political power without control of the archive, if not memory. And the complexity and referential instability of the archives in Britain proves the point. The India Gazette files in the British Library, which are not available in, in Calcutta, tell a different story, with two long letters by someone calling himself Fiat Justita, Justita in, engaging in a point-by-point -point refutation of the Bengal Hurkaru's charges. Further, an editorial in the India Gazette also discussed the Hurkaru's attack and basically said that the point that the Bengal Hurkaru is making, uh, that Ramhon had not defended the peasants with sufficient explicitness and earnestness, and this, of course, is the point that the historians in, uh, you know, were later, this was the point being labored by them as well. This point, that he is a hammer rather than of the anvil, and that he's, after all, proved himself to be a mere zamindar. And, of course, all of this fits very neatly into the Marxist subalternist accusation of the class component of the Bengal Renaissance with its nexus of the elite and com comprador against the wretched of the earth. Even when, in, uh, sort, of, sort of, sorry, all of this fits very neatly into that whole uh, the politics of it. So what I'm trying to get at really is the politics of each discussion as it takes place, whether in 1832 or in 1970. Because, and of course, all of you must be familiar already with Ranajit Goho's famous uh, essay on the Neil Dorpon where, and, and, and Ashok Shen's book, uh, The Elusive Milestones on Bidda Shagur, where they're famously saying that even when the leaders of the Bengal Renaissance are in sympathy with the poor and the wretched, they are not of them. I mean, that was the basic uh, premise, wasn't it? 
The India Gazette, however, is not in agreement, either with the Bengal Hurkaru or with the Marxist historians. On this subject, the editorial is clear. We affirm in opposition to this that if there is any one ground on which Ramohan Roy deserved the heartfelt thanks of his countrymen, it is of his countrymen, it is for his clear and forcible representations on this subject. His expression of his opinions and sentiments on this subject, in fact, quote, reflect the highest honour on him and will, we have no doubt, be productive of real advantages to his oppressed countrymen. The readers of the India Gazette are asked then to read Ramohan's evidence on the revenue systems of India and if unprejudiced, they would no doubt concur with the India Gazette in their conclusions. So, Ramohan is shown to be on the side of the peasants. But on the subject of colonisation, it seems to me, reading uh, everything you know uh, around this debate, he seems not to have stood firmly with the capitalists. The evidence does seem to suggest that Ramon changed his mind, if indeed he had ever fully supported colonization. From the report of his full speech, which is barely four or five sentences, we can see that he had not in fact been inconsistent before the select committee in insisting that colonization be limited to European gentlemen alone. In Calcutta in 1829, he had been even more general, as I pointed out. Um, speaking of interaction with Europeans in literary, social and political matters, that's, that's all he said there, really. Um, Fiat Justiter observes... Uh, also that though it was perfectly valid to do so, Ramon had not in fact changed his stance as he, quote, certainly does nowhere admit the propriety of indiscriminate civil, uh, colonization. This discussion on the class nature of putative settlers in India was long and substantial and the secretary to the Bengal government, a certain Mr. Ober, had come in for quite some criticism in these papers for his fear of low Europeans mm, flooding uh, into uh, Bengal if the gates were opened up. Ramon's caveat about the you know, European gentlemen uh, being allowed uh, into Bengal was this part of an ongoing debate and not just some individual expression of his Brahminical class consciousness as later critics seem to have implied. As it happens, history proved these fears to be groundless. As the gates were indeed opened up, the monopoly of the East India Company abolished and the free market allowed a free reign without India turning into a settler colony of the sort set up in Africa so successfully a little later in the century. Thank you. Sorry to have exceeded my time.